Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. I hope you are all having a fantastic summer. If you're not listening to this in the summer, I'm not trying to be season insensitive. I hope it's a great season, whatever season it is. There's only four seasons, so it's a pretty decent chance it's still summer. Um, Summer news, what I wanted to talk about today. I don't even know if this is news. It's just a thing that has become popular, and a lot of you reached out and a lot of discussion on Twitter about it, and that is the NBA All-Decade Team. The All-Decade Team was, this was not a official team by any stretch of the imagination. You know, the NBA does silver anniversary teams, and the NBA at 50, and hopefully as we're coming up on the 75th anniversary, we'll have an NBA 75 team, something of this nature that's officially put out by the league. This was instead put out by NBA.com and a panel of writers over there who voted on this. So it was not official. It was just a panel of writers at NBA.com. But nonetheless, it sparked a lot of summer conversation. Um, by the way, if you're if you're listening and you're one of those writers at NBA.com, I hope that didn't sound dismissive. I'm just saying to clarify, this was not an official league team that was put out honoring these players by the league. Instead, it was voted on by this panelists uh, by these panelists over at NBA.com. So today, I thought I would go through and give my version of the NBA All Decade Team. I have to say, All Decade Team. I think there's a big pro and a big con with All Decade Teams. The reason I don't love them is they're so arbitrary. The where a player's career sometimes falls, you know, it's very rare for people to say, give me your all-decade team from 2007 to 2016. That's particularly rare. You almost never see that. And so these kinds of all-decade teams and dividing, chunking up history into decades can reward players who came into the league or peaked at the right time. And it can punish players sometimes who straddle a line between two decades. I think Shaquille O'Neal among the all-time players is just the first guy that jumps out to me in that instance because he had a lot of really good years in the 90s, like really, really good years. Came into the league in 1993 and was an impact player almost immediately and then peaked right at the start of the 2000s, but really uh, by the second half of that decade was a non-factor And so a lot of times when you see people try to split up teams or split up decades into sort of this all-decade team concept, uh, he could get left off. Same, you know, this concept applies to other players as well, but it's something that I've always found a little weird about the all-decade team. I think on the flip side, the thing I like about it is that it forces us, it's it's a fixed period of time that forces us to talk about value over that period of time, and that, of course, is where CORP comes into play. CORP stands for 
championships over replacement player. And the idea is it's something that allows us to compare the value of different types of seasons across larger periods of time. So would you rather have two bites at the apple with a high-level MVP player, or are you going to be better off having 10 bites at the apple from a guy who's a lesser player, like a, a perennial all-star, but maybe not a, a, an MVP candidate or an all-NBA player? It, it allows us to balance those kinds of things over multiple years, which can be really interesting and really valuable from a, a team standpoint, from a decision-making standpoint. And so in this case, we straddle the line from 2010 to 2019, and it kind of forces us to say within that arbitrary, yes, it is a very arbitrary period, but within that arbitrary period, who, you know, who shined the brightest, basically, who had the most successful decade in the 2010s. So if we go to the NBA.com list, I'm just going to recap it in case you're not familiar with it. The They did three teams and they seem to follow some sort of front court, back court. In other words, instead of two guards, two forwards and a center, like we did it back in the old days, they seem to have a two back court player, three front court player paradigm that they stick to. I will probably stick to something similar, but I'm not going to be overly rigid about that, as and you'll see why in a second. So recapping their team, uh, first team, they had Steph Curry, James Harden, LeBron James, Kevin Durant, and Kawhi Leonard. So it's a backcourt of Curry and Harden, who have combined for three MVPs this decade. And then in the front court, it's LeBron Durant and Kawhi Leonard. LeBron, of course, won the 2010 MVP, the 2012 MVP, and the 2013 MVP. Durant won the 2014 MVP. So that covers almost every single MVP season in this decade, with the exception of the Derrick Rose MVP season in 2011, the Russell Westbrook MVP season in 2017, and the most previous MVP season from this year, 2019, Giannis Atetokounmpo, who, of course, is still only 24. So Curry, Harden, LeBron, Durant, Kawhi on the first team. Second team had Chris Paul and Westbrook in the backcourt. Westbrook, the winner of the 2017 MVP. And in the front court, Carmelo Anthony, Blake Griffin, and Anthony Davis. At this point, I would say, skimming through this, I was starting to have some knee-jerk reactions. I was starting to genuflect, if you will. The church lady was coming in and getting verklempt. Um, that is a Saturday Night Live reference from the Mike Myers era, in case anyone wants to go down a YouTube rabbit hole. The third team, just rounding out the NBA.com's team, the third team was uh, in the front court, Giannis. So now they've got all 10 MVP winners in their three teams, Paul George, LaMarcus Aldridge, it's an interesting name, whether, you know, we'll look at where he stacks up in a second, but uh, that's the front court. And then in the back court, Dwayne Wade and Kobe Bryant. Again, a lot of controversy around Kobe. Turns out that he made something like 
seven all-star teams in this decade, but a lot of that was fanfare or sort of honorary appearances relative to how many strong years he actually had in the decade. So we'll we'll look at all these guys in a second, but that's the NBA.com three teams that they put out. Now, before we get to my all-decade teams, the criteria, how did I go about approaching it? So, you know, one of the challenges with a group of panelists like that is they often let them have their own criteria. They may give very, very soft guidelines. And we see this in MVP voting. And a lot of the times, a lot of the time you'll hear the league or representatives in the league say they want it to be fluid. They want it to be open-ended. It drives conversation. It drives debate. And I think if you are a very heavy-handed narrative person, I've said this before, I love storytelling. I love narratives. It's it's the false narratives that I try to push back against whenever possible. So nothing wrong with narratives, but I think sometimes the idea of having very, very fluid criteria for some of these things allows you it allows you to get away with two things. One, it allows you to flex uh, or cherry pick a narrative and then flex it extremely hard depending on what you think the best stories are. So one season you might want to say uh, a guy coming into a new environment or coming back from an injury or something or overcoming some personal situation is quote unquote the most impressive and you weave that story. The next season, you might say uh, it's a guy raising a team to new heights despite, um, you know, falling short in other areas. Bill Walton, to go way back in time, not that Bill Walton was an unworthy MVP in my opinion, but uh, just to use an extreme example, in 1978, Bill Walton won MVP. He only played 58 games in that season, and of course, he didn't have these uh, gaudy traditional counting stats that we think of as MVP. So it was that kind of thing was like a team player playing the right way, elevates the team. They were significantly better with him than when he missed time due to injury. And so you kind of drive the narrative from that perspective. But then, of course, you can see in 2017, as we just mentioned, Russell Westbrook, instead of a ceiling, uh, raising the ceiling and coming together and doing all these nuanced, subtle parts like we've seen argued with some MVPs before, Russell Westbrook's narrative was more about this incredible carry job, the floor raising, his ability to lift Oklahoma City, uh, putting the entire organization on his back after Kevin Durant left, and so on and so forth. So to me, it's not that there's anything really inherently off about that. I just think it's something that allows for individual voters to cherry pick when they're going to be. It's very, in other words, it's very hard to pick out inconsistencies or figure out what someone individually actually cares about because they can jump onto the bandwagon of the best story whenever they want. I think the other challenge is it means people talk past each other. So one person will have a conversation about one thing that's important to them, going back here to our exercise with the All-Decade team, they may say, well, you have to have all 10 MVPs 
because the MVPs are the sort of defining player of the regular season. And if you view it from an historical, almost like a museum perspective, you have to note and honor those MVPs. So I don't care how you do it, you have to slip them in, whether you get them on the third team or the second team or the first team. And right away, to me, that is uh, changing the exercise or shifting the exercise, if you will, away from how well the player played, how good he was at how good he was at basketball, and how much his value helped a team win over the course of the decade. You know, if we said name the best two players in the last two seasons, and in each case you named a guy who I don't know went down with a devastating injury in April, typically we wouldn't call that guy's name up because he couldn't even play in the playoffs, but you know, sometimes over a 10-year period, if you start saying, well, you have to have Derrick Rose represented, and interestingly enough, he wasn't here. I'm just using this as an example. If you have to have Derrick Rose represented, then it almost doesn't matter how healthy he is or how much else he did in that time period. So, yeah, I didn't I didn't mean to... Whew, I got ranty there. I didn't mean to get ranty. I'm sorry. Uh, that, got, that got way out of control but all I was trying to do was spell out my criteria all of that is to say that the approach will be very similar to those who are familiar with my historical work I'm trying to figure out who has the most value in the 10-year period based on how they play based on what I think of them and how I evaluate them as players in each of those individual seasons I as usual will be punishing players who are injured and miss the playoffs and miss postseasons or miss seasons. It's essentially um, very difficult to help a team win a championship or provide value in those situations. So I will be taking that into account. And otherwise, the way to think about this is that, say, three all-star seasons are equivalent to um, an MVP season. Let's call it that. You can be a borderline week MVP. I'm going to talk through these player seasons as sub-all-star, all-star, all-NBA, week MVP, MVP, and occasionally I'll mention an all-time season, but in general, those five groups. You can range from being a borderline all-star player in that sub-all-star category. I've done an entire podcast about that if you go back to February of this year, and all-star, all-NBA, week MVP, and MVP. A sub-all-star player, typically about three of those seasons is worth a good all-NBA season. Uh, two all-NBA seasons are worth a good MVP season. So keep that in mind as I go through. Okay, without further ado, wait, wait. Before we get to that, today's podcast is sponsored by SeatGeek. I am quite particular about the kinds of sponsors that I work with and share with you and bring to you, but having researched and designed digital apps over the years for a living, I'm attracted to SeatGeek and this concept that they have because it's all about a user-friendly experience when you buy tickets. So the app goes out, scours the web, and then lets you know whether a ticket is a good deal or a bad deal with a simple green or red dot. They they compare the tickets and rate each ticket on a value score of, one t- of 0 to 10 for you. And the whole thing is designed to really be easy and helpful. It also has, this is crazy, it has a near-perfect rating in the App Store after 61,000 views, which is just nuts. Uh, Download SeatGeek, and with your first purchase, you get $20 off 
when you enter the code thinking basketball just like the podcast just like the youtube channel try to make it easy it's code thinking basketball when you make that first purchase for twenty dollars off they have sporting events concerts even comedy shows uh, sebastian maniscalco is on tour right now so if you want to hear a chicago accent for a long time uh nail what it was like to live before the internet man that guy that guy cracks me up um you can use SeatGeek to buy your tickets get the best deal again twenty dollars off code thinking basketball okay normally i count down from you know 10 to 1 on these kinds of podcasts but today i think i'm going to go in the opposite direction i think i'm going to start with the first team and make it down to the third team because as you know i said earlier one of the things i like about this exercise is it forces you it forces us to think about value over multiple years in a period of time well i think as you'll see elite high level players guys who are consistently high peak players or in the mvp conversation most of us regardless of our criteria and our perspective tend to agree on who the best players were even over multiple years it gets far more interesting when you get into the second or third tier of players when you're trying to figure out how valuable someone is to have on your team for six eight ten years whatever it is so in this case i'm going to start with the first team go down from there because there's more agreement at the top so my first team i was not overly rigid with the three front court to backcourt because I think if you are a wing it can kind of go either way I just I don't know I don't know about adhering to that it seemed less interesting to me I wasn't going to put five forwards or five guards but uh, take my first team for instance so first team forwards are LeBron James and Kevin Durant and these were easy landslide no-brainers LeBron James his decade alone, if he didn't play in the previous decade, and he retired today, this decade alone gets him top 10 all-time player value. That's the kind of decade that he had. He had, uh, I would say, nine of his 10 seasons were MVP seasons. By my calculation, many of those were some of the great seasons of all time. And the only season I have as a week MVP is this year when he was injured. Durant, not too far behind, even though he missed much of the playoffs this year and missed an entire postseason in 2015, only giving him eight full years, really, by this criteria. And with that in mind, those eight years, I have five of them at the strong MVP level, another at the weak MVP level. So this is a guy who for six seasons has been playing at that MVP candidate or worthy of winning an MVP in a given year level. Uh, And that is fantastic. Again, most of his value, actually all of his value as a player really happens to sit in this decade straddling these 10 years we're looking at. The other guy absolute no-brainer on the first team was Curry, so I'm in agreement with the NBA.com writers here. I, of course, for those who follow me, know I've had Curry at the MVP level for the last five seasons. You can even talk me into talking about a few of those seasons in the all-time category. He has a weak MVP season, and the interesting thing about Curry that I think we forget that is often lost in the conversation with him. I mean, 
at this point, I realize if you are just not drinking the Kool-Aid, you're just not buying in, that's fine. Uh, There are a lot of folks out there for whatever reasons that they have. But with that aside, the thing that's interesting to me, and I'll talk more about this uh, when we get into uh, future episodes comparing Curry to some other players, but what he did before that ascension to the MVP level is fascinating. So I have in the 10 years of this decade, I have Curry with one sub-All-Star season, one All-Star season, improving to one All-NBA season, And then you get to uh, really where he's been for the last six years. He continuously got better to me, especially after missing the season and rebuilding his ankles and upping his training and so on and so forth. This wasn't something where he was like a borderline all-star player and then was unleashed as a better shooter. He was phenomenal. And some of the things we were talking about in 2014 were things like, how good is this guy as a shooting point guard archetype? And that was before 2015, which was before 2016. So this is a nice reminder of that perspective for just how good Steph Curry was before his ascension to MVP level. So there's those three guys. There was a fourth guy for me who was not on the NBA.com first team, who I just thought is, he's not a total no-brainer like the first three guys I've mentioned, but he was a clear omission to me and someone I, the fourth player I comfortably had on this team, and that's Chris Paul. Chris Paul, the second guard alongside Curry, uh, I had Chris Paul with let's say, five weak MVP seasons. I do think he has a strong MVP level season or two, which is a testament to just how good his peak was. But he had phenomenal seasons with the Clippers, uh, putting them at a championship level-ish in a number of years. And his his seasons there, 2015, 2016, 2017, um, yes, there were some issues with health at times that potentially, you know, brought him back down to earth in terms of value. But over the totality of the 10-year decade, really, really strong stuff from Chris Paul. So that left me with a fifth spot that was between James Harden and Russell Westbrook. And this is what I was saying earlier about not necessarily being overly tied to positions because to me, yes, Harden is closer to a point guard than a small forward, but if you're running a team, if you're if you're trying to approximate a team, but you don't care about having bigs or a center, why am I going to nitpick that I should have a forward here when I can have, you know, 6-5 James Harden as a third guard. So I'm a little higher on Harden in his best seasons than Russell Westbrook. I'm actually comfortably higher uh, in his best seasons. I think Harden's last couple years, he has outpaced where Westbrook has ever been for me. A lot of that has to do with the scalability of these players. I think both of them are incredibly ball dominant. Of course, that's been discussed as they are now joining up in Houston this year. But Harden, to me, just a better overall offensive player. Westbrook doesn't bridge that gap with his defense. And so you end up with, you know, two or three years at that weak MVP level for me. 
And I think that Westbrook's game is so tailored toward being a floor, floor raiser. He's a guy I've defended and gone to bat for a lot, but I don't really ever think he gets into that MVP level of play for me. So my first team, uh, LeBron James in a landslide, one of the great decades in NBA history. No brainers to Steph Curry and Kevin Durant. Comfortably in is Chris Paul and also pretty comfortably, although he starts to get into the same value range as the next group of players, is James Harden as the fifth guy. Okay, on to the second team. Ah, this is where this is where things get interesting. Things get so interesting. I want to pause for another uh, commercial break, but I don't have one. Ah, gotta gotta work on that. Um, <laughs> if you're out there and you want to be inserted for suspenseful moments, uh, reach out to me and let me know. Okay, second team. Let me start with the guy who I thought was kind of a no-brainer on the second team, who did not even make any of the teams that NBA.com put out. And my guess is this is recency bias. This is just almost entirely recency bias. I'm not even sure there's another explanation given this guy's resume, given what he did, given how he's viewed, given his stats, given his narrative. It's very, given his impact and influence on the game historically, it's very difficult for me to see anything other than this being recency bias because he was a comfortable second teamer for me, and that's Dirk Nowitzki. In this decade, we basically touch the end of Dirk Nowitzki's, we certainly touch the end of his prime. He has a handful of prime years before he sort of fizzles out and gets into post-prime stuff. But that 2010 and 2011 season, as an offensive player, and I've talked about this in his all-time player profile on the Backpicks Top 40 over on Backpicks.com, he, to me, really peaks as an offensive force in 2009, 2010, 2011. Uh, There are reasons for that that I get into. We won't get into them here, but that touches two of those years. One of those years, 2011, he was, of course, incredible in the Western Conference playoffs, and then the driving force behind one of these lone all-star seasons to end up winning a championship uh, took out the beginning of the Miami Big Three Heatles era. And then it's not like Dirk Nowitzki just became terrible overnight he was actually still quite good for the next few seasons. And in 2014, it was like, that's where you get into post-prime stuff, where he's still really good, uh, playing very well in that playoff series against San Antonio, the seven-game series. Uh, I thought he still looked very good on offense. So I ended up with having Dirk two, two strong MVP seasons, another weak MVP season, and then some of these other seasons I'm talking about in the middle of the decade. I think two of those were at all NBA level, and another one was at all-star level before we really sort of lost Dirk. And maybe, ironically, there's a, a recency effect here working in the other direction, which is the last few seasons, you know, the last two years, really, he's been on sort of a retirement tour the footwork and the defense and everything have just gone so far away from where they used to be that there's just, I don't think anyone thinking that he could be a 
competitive, important player on a high-quality team, and that might be influencing how people are thinking of him over the decade instead of realizing that in the first half of the decade, Dirk Nowitzki was not only really good, but arguably at the peak of his powers at the very beginning of this decade for a couple years. So Dirk is the easy, uh, no-brainer first guy on my second team, and the NBA.com panelists did not even have him on any of their three teams. Uh, In the front court with Nowitzki, I also have Anthony Davis. I've talked about him a lot. Much of this is just the fact that there aren't a lot of great bigs, and he's had, you know, he actually racked up six really good seasons at the end of the decade and is now sort of sitting in one of these, you know, is he the best big man in the world positions as they make these teams? So we are in agreement there. Anthony Davis, second team, front court with Dirk Nowitzki. And I had three front court players here on the second team, again, being fluid with the idea of three guards or three forwards. And my third front court player was a guy who was the best center in the league for a while at the turn of the decade, and that's Dwight Howard. Again, I have to imagine this is recency bias because Dwight Howard was a legitimate MVP candidate for a couple seasons at the beginning of the decade. Now, he did hurt his back, and I don't think he was ever the same player after he hurt his back, but when I size it up, that gives me two weak MVP seasons for Dwight, two more all-NBA seasons, and then has he really started to lose his value, he, I, I still think he had two more all-star seasons. I think he had basically six quality seasons in the first half of this decade. And again, just seemingly like he's thrown out or discarded as if there are other players with multiple seasons at the forefront of the MVP race like Howard had at the beginning of the 2010s. So, What is that second team so far? Dirk, Anthony Davis, Howard. My two backcourt guys, I mentioned one of them already, Russell Westbrook. He was a no-brainer in the backcourt there. And the other guard for me was Dwayne Wade. And I think it's, I don't want to read too much into it because, again, it can be a little nebulous and you have different panelists and the criteria is different. But it is striking to me that, Dirk Nowitzki and Dwight Howard are left off this team entirely. And Dwayne Wade, who is a guy who his success in this decade is equally as front-loaded as those players, he pops right to the second team for them. And he's on my second team as well. Just interesting to note that he did not have the same treatment. And again, I'm wondering if that's because at the end of his career here, the role he played in Miami, he looks physically closer to the younger Dwayne Wade, the prime Dwayne, Dwayne Wade. And I wonder if there's some psychological tricks at play here where Wade and Kobe, they still shot a lot. They still, in a way, had similar games, but everything was diminished. The first step was diminished. The elevation was diminished. And as a result, the ability to pressure defenses went down, their effectiveness went down, their scoring efficiency went way down, but they just didn't disappear and sort of become what Nowitzki and Howard have become in the last couple seasons. Third team, I had three front court players and two backcourt players. Let's start with the front court players. 
Kawhi Leonard gets the first front court spot here. Kawhi, when you take into account missing the 2018 season entirely, missing some of the postseason, some of the critical stretch of the postseason in 2017, I have him with two week MVP level seasons, another all NBA season, two more all-star seasons, five really good quality season seasons from Kawhi. And that gets him up here, not too far away for comparison from Dwight Howard for me on that second team. That's something that possibly could be entertained. Let's put it that way. Uh, Another forward position. Okay. And this one to me was, I would describe as an unfortunate omission. When I think about, and again, I've gone to bat for LaMarcus Aldridge before, especially some of his seasons in Portland. But when I think about sitting here in 2019 and putting a team like this together to take LaMarcus Aldridge over my third team big man here, Draymond Green, it's a tough one for me to swallow. I have Draymond Green with five clear-cut all-NBA level seasons. He's the best defender of this period. His defensive value alone puts him in this conversation, really, but he has had in many seasons this additional small amount of offensive value which uh, you know helps him raise the ceiling. It helps him supercharge good offenses, and that's his passing playmaking component. For one season in 2016, he could even shoot open threes. So some of these years from Draymond, this is just the kind of guy you want on a high-level team. These are monster seasons, and maybe it sneaks up on you, but he has done it for the last half of the decade. Some of the guys we discussed earlier did it in the first half of the decade. So Draymond Green, Kawhi Leonard. My other front court player here is Paul George. Paul George is a guy I've been high on for a long time. I've loved that combination of defensive value and versatility. He is a monster defender from the small forward position or from the forward position without being a big. He's had huge seasons back in Indiana. And the fact that he could shoot that he turned into a player who could shoot, that had some off-ball value and skills, just makes that package so perfect in so many situations. So uh, for Paul George, for me, it's five all-star level seasons, even with the missed time from injury, and four of those are all NBA years. That's just enough, just enough to get him in over some of the other players in my front court. The back court. So this one even surprised me. This one also not on the radar for NBA.com. Tony Parker. Wow. It really surprised me. But based on where I have him, I think Tony Parker, people forget some of those Spurs seasons were borderline all NBA seasons from Tony Parker. And you end up with five all-star years. A handful of them were all NBA seasons. The guard competition isn't super strong. And Tony Parker sneaks in as one of my guards. Who's the other guard? Dame Lillard. Dame Lillard at this point in time, we're talking about six all-star seasons and a handful of all NBA seasons as well. Now, let me say this. There was a small gap 
after one, uh, two more honorable mention players. And one of those honorable mention players, I can really see taking either of these guard spots. For me, it was three guards for two guard spots. I'm actually, I'm actually kicking myself a little bit. I think, in a way, I almost prefer swapping out one of these guards for this third player. That third player, if you haven't figured it out yet, is Clay Thompson. Clay Thompson, I have at five All NBA type seasons. I, I obviously love all of the things Clay Thompson does as a secondary or tertiary offensive player. He adds value as a defender. And while I don't really think of him as a strong, like, top 10 type of guy, for many, many years, he has been a top 15, top 20 player. In a stacked league, he has played a tremendously important role on some of the greatest teams ever. And much like Draymond Green, like, at this point, having five seasons, there just aren't a lot of guys in the last 10 years who have six, seven, eight really high quality seasons. And those seasons add up. So, man, I could even swap out, I could be convinced to swap out Parker for Clay. Maybe I'll do that. Maybe I'll do that and switch Parker to honorable mention instead. The other guy before there's a drop-off, and I really want to mention him because I think from a value standpoint, he has as good a case as any of the guards. It's just that the forwards in many ways are a little better, although I could see him taking Paul George's final spot here. And that other big man, that other frontcourt player, is none other than Tim Duncan. Tim Duncan, with his post-prime play, and Garnett was very similar, by the way. Garnett was not too far off in this decade from Duncan. But in terms of value for me, from, from my perspective, from my valuations, Duncan, in this case, I have as having six all-star type seasons in this decade. You go back to 2010, really when the Spurs were transitioning, they were a different team, it was a different time, 2011, and really in 2012 is when that European guard-dominant ball movement, player movement, style and system started to take hold, and it was a lot of Ginobili and Parker, and Ginobili's not too far away, by the way, that what shocked me the most was that it was Parker popping up with value and Parker as the spur to show up here, I think just because of health, because of longevity. So who did the NBA.com folks have on here that we haven't mentioned? Blake Griffin, Carmelo Anthony, Kobe Bryant, LaMarcus Aldridge, and Giannis. Of those players, I would say Aldridge and Kobe were definitely the closest because Kobe, his 2010 is at the end of his prime. He's still very good. His 2011 and 12 are solid but declining, and then injuries really start to kick in, and that largely is it for Kobe after that point. And Aldridge, like I said, I'm higher on him than many in the past in some regards, but At the same time, this has never really been a guy who's been cranking out top six or top eight seasons or anything like that. And so after a number of years, he's not too far off. Uh, Blake Griffin, to me, was a bit of a shocker. And there are things about Blake's game that I love. I don't want to dive into it here right now. But 
He's become a skilled passer, obviously become a shooter. I think when he was with the Clippers, his development in that area, passing and shooting specifically, and some of the other skills that he sort of polished as a big, were really, really impressive because we forget he came into the league as an athletic force, as a dunking, explosive, almost like a one-trick pony. That's selling him short because he was a he was a good college player, uh, a worthy top pick, and had a very good rookie year. But just the skills he's developed in those areas have always impressed me. The challenge for me is I don't love – I've never loved his offensive game in any particular season in a way that really, really moves the needle. Like you don't look at him and go, well, this is one of the five or seven best offensive players in the league. And at the same time, you have the issue of his defense. I just have never loved his defense. I've never loved taking up the four spot. I, I I don't think you can ever really play him at the five, although that would be an interesting kind of Amari Stoudemire experiment. And so I've always sort of seen a, a ceiling on Blake's value from that perspective. So he wasn't way, 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 way down the list for me, but he wasn't close uh, like some of these honorable mentions or some of these other guys I've, I've noted. On the other hand, Giannis to me just does not have the longevity yet. This was his first breakout season, I think, the year before and possibly even 17 are good years as well, but it's just not enough. Now, he's so good and playing at such a high level that if you if you put one more season like the season he had right now up on the board and snuck it into this decade, he'd probably be a no-brainer third-team choice, and it would be interesting to see if he... I'm looking at the numbers here. I don't quite think he could get to second team. So it's probably the kind of thing where one more season gets him on my third team, but he just doesn't have enough longevity. The last player is Carmelo Anthony. Oh, how much time do we have? I mean, to me, this is just a flat-out disagreement. Carmelo Anthony, to me, has never been a high-peak player. He has never... I, I think he's had some seasons that you could say are all-NBA-type seasons, specifically 2013 and 2014, where his scoring and impact was probably at its best in his career. But he really fell off after that, uh, 15, 16, 17, 18 in Oklahoma City. I mean, these are just not good seasons. He did not play well, um... You know, obviously in 15, had injury. I just don't think he was ever really the same. I think he degraded quickly. And so you kind of have a double whammy here for me. You've got longevity. You've got all those guys I mentioned earlier, you know, Dirk Nowitzki and Dwight Howard and even the Spurs players, all these guys who have had so much success in the first half of this decade. And I'm looking at the second half of Carmelo Anthony's decade, and I really don't see a lot there at all. And you go to the first half, again, I'm not viewing those seasons as, you know, weak MVP or super strong all-NBA seasons. It's not like he's racking up five of those. It's more like he, and I've talked about Anthony for years, which is why I, it was a bit of an inside joke when I sighed a minute ago and took a deep breath, because as good of a scorer as he is, as good of an overall basketball talent 
and player as he's been for 15 years since he was back in Syracuse helping them win the title as a freshman, that just that doesn't automatically make you a top five NBA player. It doesn't automatically make you a top eight or 10 NBA player. And the combination to me of his defensive shortcomings, which at times have been very prominent, and the way he plays offense, the deliberateness, the isolation, the ball stopping, he's not a terrible passer per se, but he's also not a great creator. He's never been the type of offensive player that is an engine or a vortex that bends the defense around his will and table sets team, you know, for teammates left and right. That's never been his strength or his MO. So I, I just see him in that first half of the decade having maybe his two best years and then a handful of, you know, maybe you can call them all-star seasons, maybe not. And that, to me, that just doesn't get him it doesn't get him to where the rest of the players on this list were. So that is it for my NBA All-Decade team of the 2010s. Recapping first team, LeBron James, Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, Chris Paul, and James Harden. Second team, Russell Westbrook, Dwayne Wade, Dirk Nowitzki, Anthony Davis, and Dwight Howard. Third team, Kawhi Leonard, Draymond Green, Paul George, and as I said, I'm going to audible here and go Clay Thompson and Damian Lillard. Hope you enjoyed that. That was a fun one for me. Hopefully you found it interesting and worthwhile as well. If you want to support the podcast, again, if you're buying some tickets, check out SeatGeek and enter the code THINKINGBASKETBALL for $20 off your first purchase. You can also support this podcast and everything else I do by heading on over to patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball and subscribing over there. You get There's a couple different tiers. You get all kinds of different content. There's more coming in the works, which will be released very shortly. I've been blown away by how many new subscribers I've had this summer over there, so I am trying to continue to churn out content over the summer. World Championships of Basketball coming up shortly in a few weeks. That should be a great tournament. Until then, I will talk to you in the next episode, and as always, I hope you're having a great day.